0: Talking animals Walks like an animal Talks like an animal Must be an animal's
1: Good morning, this is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss, and my guest today is Don Arga, co-director of The Bond, a four-part wildlife series now streaming on Discovery+. Plus. The bond examines the profound singular animal-human connection forged amongst four folks and critters from disparate backgrounds and regions across the world. For example, Ray Harvey operates a kangaroo sanctuary in Australia where most of the animals are rehabilitated then released while retaining the freedom to come and go from the facility. One kangaroo, Kanku, has become a permanent resident developing an exceptionally close, powerful relationship with Harvey. Meanwhile, in the northeast of the U.S., the bond profiles Jay Sargent, a Rhode Island riding instructor, who more than two decades ago went on a vacation with her husband to Kirk, Turks and Caicos. While there, she befriended a bottlenose dolphin named JoJo, a friendship that has continued to this day and deepened, even as Sargent has faced major medical struggles. These represent just two of the four segments, each about 45 minutes long, and all co-directed by Argot and partner Sheena uh, and Joyce. their Their company's extensive credits include The Art of the Steel, two episodes of Netflix, Cat People. We'll find out more about the bond and the distinctive relationship depicted in it, including a goat and a cheetah, when I speak with Don Arga in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Later in today's program, I'll talk with Kirsten Peake of the Humane Society of the United States, HSUS, to discuss uh, discuss their operation rescuing 4,000 beagles, removing them from a facility in Virginia. The beagles were being bred and sold to laboratories that conduct animal experimentation. We'll hear about this major project and how we might help a little bit later on in the show. Right now, though, let's discuss some extraordinary relationships forged between humans and animals and The Bond, the streaming series that examines four such relationships with the co-director of The Bond, Don Argot. With a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663 emailing DJ at WMNF.org, or texting 813-433-0885. This is Don Argot on Talking Animals on WMF. Good morning, Don. Hey, how are you,
2: man? Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks for uh, joining us on the show today. So uh, congratulations on the bond, which we'll certainly obviously address in the... Uh, some detail in a moment or two but i'd first like to discuss some of your other films in fact maybe we could actually just travel further back a little bit i'm always interested how a documentary filmmaker kind of gets started and and what pulls them into it so how did how did you how did you get your start
2: um it's funny i actually i went to um to school in 1993 uh basically at the art institute of philadelphia and um the program that they had at the time was uh, the music, video, and business program. So it was a little bit of like, you know, a little little of everything of some of my interests. Obviously, I came in, uh, you know, uh, interested in filmmaking, but I was also grew up a musician, so thought that, that maybe there would be a career for me, and maybe if I wasn't going to be in bands as a career, then maybe, like, you know, some... Some part of the music business, whether that was in the engineering side or whatever, uh, and you know, once I went to school, I really kind of fell in love, like full full steam ahead with with filmmaking and my interest in like doing audio engineering and things like that. Were just not as uh, just didn't have as much of a desire for it because you know filmmaking, photography, and you know uh, editing, I was just really taken by it. So at that point, I really really immersed myself in, you know, like, you know, film history and, and, you know, really watching a lot of films. And again, this is the early 90s, so, you know, I, it's always for context in the times now that everything is so uh, easily accessible at the time. You still had to, like, seek things out and really kind of, you know, find your own way. And uh, I remember early on in my filmmaking, um, you know, kind of, you know, uh, being, being in school, uh, I saw a documentary called American Movie by a filmmaker named Chris Smith. And the, the film honestly just changed my my perception of what documentaries were uh, up until that point. You know, documentaries weren't uh, a huge part of my life. You know, I've certainly in high school, you know, remember seeing like Nanook of the North and things like that. But documentaries in my mind at that point were always like very kind of, you know, kind of, boring and (laughs) pedantic and uh it wasn't anything that was like i was super interested in and then seeing american movie which is about uh you know a filmmaker trying to make a movie uh who and it's just a it's a really a film about dreams it's a film about kind of following your passion and to me it, it reframed uh what documentaries could be and at that point, I really kind of, like, you know, uh, was a bit sing- single-focused. I was very, uh, just very interested in, in documentary films. So I started to watch more documentaries uh, from the 60s, obviously, the Maisel Brothers and uh, Great Gardens, things like that. Like So I r- really started to, like, educate myself on, you know, what documentaries, like, could be. And that was the journey that I went on, and that was the thing that kind of, like, really set me off and then you know uh, years later i ended up making my first documentary which is a film called rock school uh about this uh school here in philadelphia called the paul green school of rock music which which is very much based on the jack black movie yeah um, rock so um and it was you know we were making our film at the right as that film was being made too and of course that film had come out and been very successful and i think in turn helped The interest for our the real-life School of Rock, the film that we were making, uh, it really helped raise the profile of of that. And we got it into a film festival at the Los Angeles Film Festival, and we sold it, and that became our first, you know, kind of big stepping stone into the business.
1: Wow. Well, that sounds cool. And it sounds like really the, uh, although you're already on that path, that once you saw American Movie, like, you were totally cemented into documentaries and said, hey, if this is how they can be, I'm even more in than I was, you know, five minutes ago. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It was a game-changer for me. And so uh, this may then seem like kind of a a rhetorical question, uh, but was there, along the path, even after you kind of locked in and made, um, you know, School of Rock, et cetera, was there, has there been at any point a flirtation with making, you know, narrative feature scripted films? Or were you always like, hey...
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was the thing that got me into you know filmmaking in general. Like when I, before I went to decide to go to film school, I was watching like Goodfellas and you know Scorsese films, and you know, that was kind of the early '90s. Was you know kind of the Robert Rodriguez, Quentin Tarantino era. So it was yeah. a really exciting time where like independent film and like films that were you know, being made outside the studio system, quote-unquote. Uh, there was, like, just some unique stuff happening, and I was obviously t- very taken with that. So I think, like, I started as, like, like wanting to be a cinematographer. That was the thing that, like, I was all, I was, like, obsessed with, mm. like, visuals and framing and lighting and things like that. Yeah. And, and over time, uh, you know, I, I, I came to realize that, you know, I wanted more control over just being the guy shooting. I also wanted to help tell the story. So I kind of like started being like a DP director type and you know, I I think that really helped me uh, you know, use both both of my passions at that time which were like, you know, I I really love storytelling and I love great characters but I also like the idea of like having control over the image and things like that. So it was a a perfect marriage. Um, But we actually did do a a narrative film. We did a romantic comedy um, a few years back called Slow Learners. So we got to work with uh, incredible improv actors uh, and we kind of approached it in a documentary spirit
0: you mm, know, uh-huh.
2: acting it's it was we kind of like had a a script that wasn't you know incredible and we knew that we can punch the material up and working with really talented improv actors you know from like saturday night live and things like that it was giving them the space which is frankly what we do in making documentaries is like yeah. you know we set up what the scene is going to be i mean obviously things just don't happen you know we there's a little bit of like behind the scenes maneuvering to make you know like why are we out on a boat you know like we had we had to make that happen but then once you're you're in the environment you know then you just kind of you know capture it and and be and and try to be as unobtrusive as possible but knowing that if you're not getting the content you need to like throw questions out and like try to get them to where you feel like they should be going and, and talking about whatever the issue is, you know.
1: So with the slow learners experience, do you think that's something you'll circle back to? Or are you still pretty much firmly in the uh, documentary camp? No,
2: very, very much so. And, and like, we, we've been very fortunate in the past few years. We did a film uh, called Framing John DeLorean, in which it's a documentary about John DeLorean. But the way in was all these failed narrative Hollywood scripts of the DeLorean story that, like, people weren't weren't able to kind of get made. And we worked with, uh, we ended up casting Alec Baldwin to play our our John DeLorean in these reenactments that we used in the, you know, in the documentary. So it, it's just something that we've flirted with and have been actually, uh, you know, kind of, you know, Working in that space of like blurring the lines between the filmmaking, documentary, so it's it's been very cool. And we did another film, another ten part documentary series that's actually on Roku right now called Slugfest, in which it's like the history between Marvel Comics and DC Comics. Oh, great! We used a lot of like uh, actors that played you know within the Marvel and DC universes to play the real comic book creators like Stan Lee and J- Jack Kirby and things that like. we worked with Ray wise from twin peaks who plays Jack Kirby, who's like, like strikingly like very, uh, uh like a doppelganger for, uh, Jack Kirby. So that was a fun thing to do. So oh, yeah. I feel like it was a way to challenge ourselves in the documentary form because you know, there, there's obviously a lot more emphasis and excitement about documentaries now than there ever were certainly more than when we started out. You know, in the early two thousands, right. documentaries. You know, we couldn't get arrested making docu- documentaries early on, and now it's like you know everybody and their mom
0: wants a documentary. So yeah,
2: so it's so it's been interesting to to see how the industry and and how the uh, per, you know the perceptions in general about even documentaries have changed over the past you know two decades. Uh, but for us, we're always looking to you know, well, how can we challenge ourselves with this story? And what, what, what's a more interesting way to tell this story outside of, like, the traditional, like, you know, talking head and interview and archive and all that kind of stuff? Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're always trying to push ourselves. As well.
1: Yeah, well, it sounds like you've got such a great grounding and so well trained, and, and initially we were, were aspiring to be a cinematographer. So you've got everything down to make a documentary, but, you know, like anybody that's, you know, kind of got a restless creative spirit is like now looking for how you can play around with that. And it, it almost sounds like, as some of these other projects have come together, you just mentioned that you kind of made your own American movie, uh, you know, in, in, in a sense, Absolutely. right? Just sort of playing with the form and, uh, and making. Making things, so the next filmmaker coming up behind will say, "Hey, I really like framing John DeLorean, or I like the exactly. Slugfest, it, it, or whatever." Exactly. Yeah, that's
2: the, that's the beauty of like you know being in this business, and and really we are all kind of like we are peers, and we're all influencing each other. And you never know like what work you put out into the world. You know, like for me, like watching American Movie at that moment in my life was such a huge thing for me. Yeah, such a pivotal moment. And, you know, hopefully, you know, with the work that we do, you know, whoever, if, if, if they watch something that we've done, uh, that gives them that same inspiration, like a great, really surreal moment for me early on in my career was after we made the art of the steel, which was our third film, Chris Smith reached out to me and to tell me how that it was one of his favorite documentaries.
0: Oh, wow.
2: And, it was a total kind of insane full circle moment for me. I was like, dude, you have no idea. Like you're, you're the reason, frankly, that like you saw the art of the steel, because if it wasn't for American movie, I don't know that I would be, you know, in this position making documentaries. So it was really beautiful.
1: Oh, that's great. Wow. Wow.
2: And and that, those are the kinds of things that happen, you know? Yeah,
1: no, that's great when you hear from the actual inspiration for what you do, the way you do it. That uh, it's hard to imagine something more powerful than that. So that's yeah, fantastic. Yeah, it wow. a really,
0: really big moment for
1: me. Yeah. So, uh, and I think you mentioned earlier that you know you, you, part of your interest, younger, were film, but also music. And you know that's still obviously, I guess, plays out in some of the projects. One one measure of that is, I think, one of your latest docs. Uh, Profiles Ronnie James Dio, right? That's right. So, yeah, that's right. Why, 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 what attracted you to uh, to Dio just out of curiosity? Then, we'll, and then we'll get to the bond in a sec.
2: Yeah, yeah. No, I, thanks for for asking. That. No, I'm. We're. I'm obviously. You know, I grew up listening to you know punk rock and heavy metal, and that was the foundational aspects of like who I am as a person is. You know, uh, shaped in large part by music and specifically like heavy metal and punk rock music so you know ronnie james Dio, when i was growing up was like you know i mean he's like a god you know there's yeah. people that you posters you have on your wall and the lyrics that you listen to that help you know kind of get you through tough times and you know kind of cement your world view on on things you know about how the world works and the injustices and that kind of stuff which is i think at the core of like a lot of heavy metal and hard rock like a lot of questioning authority and things like that so that was uh, such a big part of my life and and uh you know years we've done a lot of uh documentaries in the music space and uh we got a call from uh bmg we did a film with uh uh with live nation about imagine dragons and dan reynolds uh, uh called believer and it was like his kind of Faith crisis going through being growing up Mormon and trying to reconcile his faith with his fan base, who is uh, a large part of their fan base is gay, uh, and so the, the, it became this really powerful, you know, documentary. Mm. Uh, and and you know, did really well. It was on HBO and and got out there. And then through that, uh, BMG Films had reached out. They would seen Believer and uh, asked me if you know they they said they were very interested in working with us on projects and. Pitched us a couple of things that weren't the right fit, and then I got an email from the executive there, uh, Kathy, who had said, um, "You know, any interest in a Dio documentary?" And I literally, like, it, within a matter of like seconds, wrote her back, like in all caps, with like a million exclamation points, like, "Yes, yes, yes!" You know. Oh, wow. So obviously, Dio is such a big—I uh, was a huge, such a huge fan of his, and the, the idea of being able to, uh, you know, kind of tell his story. Uh, was just kind of a bit of a once in a lifetime opportunity, so uh, that's how that came to be. Yeah. And, and um, you know, music is, is still such a huge part of uh, the types of projects that we look for. You know, um, you know, biotics bio things like that that are. Uh, things that
1: we're passionate about. Yeah. Well, I haven't seen the film yet, but a uh, 100 years ago when I was a music journalist, the LA Times had me do a, a few different things on Dio, including once going out to his house to interview him. And his house, of course, as you would expect, it had like a castle look to it. Yeah, it's in it was... you know,
2: That's where we, we filmed in, in, his, uh, in
1: his home. And... Oh, okay. Yeah, but I mean, I, the thing that I was so struck by um, is just what an interesting guy and what an incredibly smart guy. He was. No, I mean, very, I was sort of bl- blown away. Yeah. So. Uh, and,
2: and a career, his career really does span the history of music. I mean, he started out doing doo-wop. You know, he was singing before the Beatles came out. Yeah. Uh, the fact that he's had that long of a career and uh, was in, you know, obviously with Rainbow, with Richie Blackmore, and then Black Sabbath after Ozzy, and then his own thing. I mean, the guy's had four.
1: Incredible career. Yeah. Well, whether whether you're a DO person or not, you have to say that that guy had some some incredible pipes. I mean, there was just no such... such, Uh, uh, Unbelievable. Yeah. So cool. So this is Talking Animals on WNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you just sent in, my guest is Don Argot, co-director of The Bond, a four-part wildlife series now streaming on Discovery+. Plus. The Bond examines the singular... Uh, animal human connection forged across four folks and critters from disparate backgrounds and regions across the world. The four animals include a kangaroo, a dolphin, a goat, and a cheetah. If you'd like to ask Don a question or offer a comment, please call eight one three two three nine. Nine six six three. Email DJ at WMNF dot org or text eight one three four three three zero eight eight five. So I guess you just kind of described how the deal thing came came about. I guess you guys have been doing this long enough and obviously well enough that you probably get approached about all kinds of projects. So I'm just curious, like in, in particular, how the how you decided to do the bond or how that opportunity came came came. To be presented to you. Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, again, we've been doing it for a long time, as you said, and and know obviously a lot of uh, you know people in, in the space, producers and distributors, and all that kind of stuff. And uh, you know, Glenn Zipper, who we worked with on uh, Cat People, he created yeah. a show called Cat People on Netflix, and we uh, and we have known Glenn for a number of years and been looking to work together in some capacity uh, for for a while now, and he had approached us about. Uh, and knowing that we, Sheena and I are uh, indeed cat people ourselves. And we had, at one point we had five cats.
0: Uh, okay. Now
2: sadly we only have, uh, one cat. Oh wow. Uh, <laughs> of, of Yikes. five Yeah. Uh, he's our last one standing 20 years in. And, uh, but so, yeah, we, we love cats and, uh, Glenn knew that. And he, uh, he's the dog person, he created the show dog. Right. Did really well on Netflix and he was doing the spinoff called cat people and, We uh, uh, thankfully he uh, he he knew that we were cat people and asked us if we'd be interested in directing a few episodes. So we ended up doing two episodes of that. And then after that experience, uh, you know, he had reached out a few months later and said, "Hey, I'm developing something with Susan Downey and Robert Downey Jr. uh, And we're looking for a director for just for the whole whole series of these four episodes. Would you guys be interested?" And of course, uh, you know, aside from film and music you know animals are probably our top three things that we love and care about so it was it was no-brainer yes for us in that in that respect and that's how um that's how we got involved in it and it was knowing that these had to be you know kind of 48 minutes long uh you know that we had to find stories that had a lot of like you know a lot of story to them right yeah no aside from like oh isn't that a cute uh you know animal and person relationship after the after <laughs> five minutes yeah if it doesn't go anywhere it's like all right well what am i watching now
1: what yeah well,
2: the hardest part frankly was finding the stories and the characters that really did have you know enough going on to sustain you know a 48 minute uh show and uh, and-, and so that yeah.
1: Oh no. So I was going to say. So I was going to ask. So to what extent were you guys involved in in the process of of selecting the four stories featured in the bond uh, from what I presume was a, a lar- you know, larger pool of potential bond stories? Right? Was there a matter of? Yeah.
2: Yeah. We we were involved in every step of it. I mean, it was all a collaborative uh, effort. There wasn't one person saying like, "Oh, we should do this story." It was like we had, you know, we had a, a casting company that that kind of cast a pretty wide net. And uh, found us uh, a lot of diverse stories from around the world, and then we had basically a checklist of things that we they all needed in order to kind of advance to the next you know round of like or who stays and who goes. And as we started to whittle down our our checklist, it was like there there was frankly uh, not a lot. You know there wasn't there wasn't a lot left to to that needed. That had all the things that we knew that we needed yeah. in order to tell a compelling long-form story. I mean, if you're doing like a 20-minute or a half-hour short, then the criteria becomes a little less restrictive. But sure. with this, knowing that there there needed to be a lot of story, uh, that, that was something that we wrestled a lot with in picking... The stories that we ended ultimately ended up choosing,
1: and was one of the items on the on the checklist uh, some international stories, or is that just because these stories happen to check other things on the uh, criteria? Yeah,
2: yeah, there was, yeah, it was, it was, there wasn't a uh, uh, that wasn't a, a prerequisite, but it was just the I think the function of like you know casting that wide net and just seeing what you know cause we knew it didn't matter where the stories were, we just knew that they needed to you know have. All these these other elements that yeah. we needed in order to tell the best story. So, and I'm glad that they're all around the world and they're not just like centered in one one spot or one area. You
1: know? Yeah, no, because it really does. Uh, yeah, and it just inherently suggests how universal sometimes a connection between a, a, one or more humans and an animal can be. So for Absolutely. sure. So, is there a? Uh, like a framework or fundamental structure for telling the stories in the Bond. Like, I want to be careful about spoilers, but after watching the first two (laughs) films, I thought what all four might well have in common after I watched others would be some sort of either uh, tragic story or tough reversal partway through and then it turns out that wasn't the case at least after watching the third piece so uh, I still haven't seen the fourth one yet but uh, but were there, were there, was there something about the way you wanted to tell the story I mean I know obviously it had to be, reach a certain length just I guess probably for uh, the sake of the discovery plus uh, streaming element, but um, right. were, were there other things about trying to tell the story that you were looking forward to, to put into each one, or were they all just approached separately and just inherently told those? Particular-
2: I, I mean, I mean, I think it was like somewhere in the middle of that. Obviously, you know, the, the, any diversity and obstacles that you have to overcome is inherent in good storytelling, right? You mm-hmm. don't want just a story that's just like... Uh, well, here's my kangaroo, and we hang out, and we watch TV every day, and, and <laughs> yeah. there's nothing much to the story. So yeah. uh, knowing that the, the things that we were attracted to were really some kind of present-day component because, again, making documentaries and, and working in documentaries, you know, we've done all different kinds of, of, of storytelling, and I think that there's obviously stories that have happened in the past that uh, you know are you have to go and kind of recreate moments uh, and and you know bring the audience along about what happened already that we you know cameras weren't there to capture and then uh, you know what what story has like some kind of like compelling narrative thrust that we can be a that we can be truly documentaries about like be uh, you know following something happening uh, in front of us so I think those. Those were the things that we were looking for more than anything, yeah. like, obviously we knew they were going to have stories that uh, had a historical aspect to them, like things that had happened in the past that you know, kind of propel where they're headed into the future. but that the, the ratio needed to be all right, well, we know we have the first act of this film uh, sorted because we know what the backstory of this you know, the, this story is in terms of you know the relationship, the relationship with the yeah. animal, how that came about what they had to overcome and now the rest of it is, okay, what are we doing to like watch uh, unfold? You know, so that those were the things that we were really, um, you know, kind of conscious conscious, of conscious of and, and include into.
1: And how long that makes me wonder, like how long did the production period span? Because some stories encompass what, what seems like at least a long time, like just by virtue of incorporating some significant events that, that happened at one point or another, but was there an overall window that that you guys were working within to to to, to pull we, the stories? We, we
2: had we had parameters of of production days. I mean, we basically tried to make yeah. You know, we were in like a ten day production per per episode, uh, which doesn't sound like a lot of time, but it, you know, when you know how to tell stories and and you know wh- what you have to work with going into it, it's you have to make the most of those uh, of those days and. um you know, that so so that was the, the one component of it. And then there's covid uh, of it all that, that, you know, we were doing this in the middle of a pandemic, uh, uh, which which a lot of uncertainty uh, from week to week, from month to month about when we could travel or when we, you know, what might be able to even if we couldn't personally be there, uh, you know, what country like Australia, for example, they were on lockdown. So we couldn't even get remote crews out there to, like, do to do filming because that country was in lockdown, let alone, like, us being able to travel there The yeah. people in the country couldn't do anything. So there was a lot of, you know, as as we all have had to adapt in this time of, of the pandemic, uh, you know, us as in the production community, you know, we've all been battling how we do the work that we do. You know, we are used to traveling a lot. We're used to kind of, like, you know, being able to do whatever we want when we want to do it. And this was like a a real kind of slap in the face of like, not so fast, like, no, you can't, you have to figure this out. Right. It was a lot of like, all right, when can we do this? And, you know, how can we do this? And like, so, you know, a, a already kind of like, you know, fairly compressed, uh, you know, production schedule, you know, just gets spread out over a longer period of time, which in a lot of ways does work for your, the story because you yeah. just go on one day and capture all the stuff you need and then be done. You know, you want to feel like there's a story that you're tracking. So it's a couple of days here and then a couple of days here and then, you know, five days in Turks and Caicos to kind of wrap, you know, finish out the story of, uh, in that instance, the, 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 the dolphin story. Yeah. Um, but, but that, that all of them took several months. Uh, You know, uh, to a year, frankly. uh, Okay. When we started that, yeah,
1: because when Um, you first said ten days, I thought uh, before you mentioned COVID, I thought ten days, like like over scattered over what period of time? Because it feels like at least a couple of those encompass so much uh, and so many stories, uh, you know, troubles, uh, tragedies, you know, concerns, whatever they might be. That I thought this seems to span some of them at least, like a really long time. So uh sounds like, yeah, those 10 days definitely were, in, in some cases at least, really sprinkled over a, a, a sizable period.
2: Sizable, yes,
1: very yeah. sizable. <laughs> yeah. So um, so talk to me about some of the, beyond COVID, which obviously would, would be the biggest challenge, of course, but talk to me about some of the logistics and challenges as, as director of shooting this series. For example... Uh, you mentioned Turks and Caicos a moment ago. So shooting in the Bahamas, mostly on or in the water, for the story about Jojo the dolphin. Like, what yeah. what, what what sort of challenges did that specifically present? Well, I
2: mean, just shooting on a boat in general is a nightmare, yeah. um, <laughs> and then uh, just shooting on a boat in you know. 100-degree heat uh, every day looking for a dolphin in an ocean feels like <laughs> this is where we are, we all must have gone insane. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's no way that we're going to find a dolphin in this gigantic ocean. <laughs> and then, lo and behold, uh, you know, not to spoil anything, but, you know, it, it, we, we get the moment. And, uh, you yeah, know, that's what you do it for, those, yeah. those things. That's why that's the value and that's the... Uh, the beauty of documentary is, uh, is, is bringing you into these worlds, introducing you to characters, and then, you know, going on a journey, not knowing what's going to happen, but, you know, you're kind of hoping that the things that you want to have happen do happen. And in that case, obviously uh, it, it, it was great. And um, so, yeah, it, it was, it was a really interesting time. It's frankly, a, it was a year, almost a year to the day. Our, our first day in Turks and Caicos was July uh, 26th, which was yesterday oh wow that we were <laughs> that we were shooting that so oh really uh, wow
1: yes. yeah
2: it's uh so where you know day, day two is i think the day which was today um this time last year i think it was the day that we found jojo so uh that was yeah
1: yeah because yeah, it's go. so interesting like <laughs> like you know that unlike the kangaroo story let's say or whatever Kantu, uh With with a a dolphin, that's you know part of the the thing that's great about it is it's obviously Mm -hmm. a a thousand ways different from a captive dolphin, and and the 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 woman, the, the you know the focus, the human focus of that story is really vehemently anti captivity and whatever. But the point is, you are looking for a dolphin in the waters, the open waters. So that made me. That was one of the things I thought was like. When, when actually on on screen we're seeing like a, a search for for Jojo, but I thought, what if you know, like, well, how much time would there be where the we have to say, oh my God, we we're gonna we have to wrap this up, we have to get this edited, we have yeah. to make a deadline, whatever it might be, and then, but we haven't found Jojo, so you yeah, know, right. I just.
0: Yeah, There's a
2: lot of pressure. There's a lot of inherent pressure in that because, you know, the other part of the story, which had nothing to do with our production schedule as much as it had to do with Jay's, you know, health situation, which was, you know, she was in the middle of uh, dialysis and chemo treatments and, you know, she basically has these off weeks, uh, you know, like uh, like two weeks on, two weeks off uh, for the treatment and yeah. we were going on an off week. So if we didn't get it in the five days that we were down there, like well, then you know that's the story and we obviously you know probably would have like figured out how to go back again to get it because the last thing you want to do in a tv series uh when you're promising seeing a dolphin is like not deliver on it <laughs> right yeah. So,
1: yeah yeah that that <laughs> so that, that, that blurry way. thing out in the water just us is a dolphin but it might yeah, not look yeah. like a dolphin exactly yeah. yeah
2: so there was a lot of pressure uh for sure and and obviously after day one uh, of just driving, you know, for six hours on this tiny boat, uh, you start to feel like, man, we must have been crazy to think that we're going to come down here and, like, see a dolphin. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you know, but at the end of that day, there's a lot of, like, oh, what happens if we don't get the dolphin? Yeah. You know, all the natural conversations. Yeah. But then, you know, you know that's, again, the beauty of, of this uh, entering into the unknown of making
1: documentaries. is, like, you know, and sometimes, cool. you yeah. sometimes you get lucky. Sometimes you get lucky. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> this is Talking Animals on WNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest is Don Argonne, co-director of The Bond, a four-part series, now streaming on Discovery+, Plus that showcases four extraordinary animal-human relationships, or bonds, mostly involving wild animals. We invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing DJ at wmnf.org or texting 813 813- 4330885 so what what did uh, along the way uh, apart from production challenges and especially i'm going to guess the bahamas thing had probably a, a higher degree of you know uh, uncertainty challenge uh, anxiety than probably the other stories maybe not but um, but what did you find most incri- intriguing or surprising about each of those four stories as you were you know, shooting it and and figuring out like okay, here's here's how we're gonna go with this. But but what what were some of the things just because of those bonds, those extraordinary bonds that were, of course, at the center of the of the uh, series to begin with, were the things that you thought, oh my god, this this is truly remarkable.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, frankly, all the stories um, really have that, that really have something that you could latch to if you're especially if you're an animal person and understanding that uh, you know. The thing that I I really took from this is clearly, you know, as a self-professed cat person, you know, I know how I feel about my cat. Uh, I see him as a part of our family. Uh, You know, he's 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 our constant, you know, he's he's the one constant, you know, thing that we have in our life that you can count on is going to be there to love you unconditionally. You know, and that that's. As animal people, you know, I think we, uh, you know, we can relate to those relationships that we have with our, what, I, I hate the term pets, but, you know, whatever for yeah. shorthand, yeah. Our, our cats uh, and dogs specifically, they're domesticated. But I think, you know, what was beautiful about this and what was really kind of like, I'm kind of affirming, frankly, to see that you, you know, the, the relationship that Ray has with Kanku is the relationship I have with my cat. And, and I think anybody who's a cat or a dog person or a rabbit, whatever, have like more domestic domestic uh, pets that they have in their life, will see that strong bond in things that they're not used to uh, seeing. And it's the same; it's the connection that you have with something outside of your species. Yeah, uh, that's really uh, powerful and really resonant and really beautiful, you know. and and and, and it really like I don't know to me like. It's, it's just uh, like such an incredible thing to, to witness. You know, when, when Kenku has his paw on uh, Jay, that's not like, I mean, it's obviously a beautiful image, but that's powerful. You know what I mean? Like, it's, yeah. it's, it's a powerful image well, of, you know, you, seeing like you're seeing two human hands holding. You're not used to seeing like, you know, an animal hand holding a, a human hand. And uh, just that that kind of stuff I just think is, is beautiful and, and it, it gives you a little bit of hope for humanity for sure. In, in times when a lot of times there's
1: not a whole lot of hope sometimes. Well, and even uh, before even getting a chance to see uh, the Bond, which again is you know available now on, on Discovery Plus uh, for people who want to check out what we're d- discussing. But even just like a still image that I, I did in a couple of social media posts just to, to, to sort of promote that we'd be having this conversation today. There's a the picture I used was uh, Ray and Kanku basically hugging, and it's yeah. like, I mean, so powerful. And, and then you, especially if you're first looking at it and if you don't know it's a kangaroo, you're sort of looking at it thinking, Wait, is that a kangaroo? and it's yeah. like, you know, all the more powerful when you realize, Yes, it, yes, it is, and because you think, Okay, a cat or a dog or you know, whatever, like. That's not uncommon to see that, but it's highly uncommon to see that kind of pose with a with a human and a, and a kangaroo. So, to, absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. So, and I, and I think, for, yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I was going to
2: say, I think uh, kind of, you know, building off of that thing. I, I feel like one of the things that I feel a lot of times, especially in the world that we live in right now, is you know, we've gotten so far away from just you know things that are that are beautiful and important and you know we have gone down a lot of paths in this country and this world frankly that were you know we can now look back and be like man we we really went down the wrong path you know like we probably should have like stopped that at some point and turned it around and like re, re you know reworked it and i think that you know these relationships that we're all we're all in this together i mean we really are you know and it, it, it sometimes it takes you know, events. You know, some sadly catastrophic events to realize that, like, wow, you know, like we we all really are, should be in this together more, and we should be like, you know, figuring out how to work together and be together more, as opposed to like be be apart and like highlight our you know, everything that we're different uh, that's about us and our ideologies and so, and things like that. But I do feel like the same thing with with animals. You know, like you know, certainly with the way that we've you know domesticated cats and dogs is something that is. Standard now, and I'm not saying that like these relationships that we uh, of wild animals, we should like you know move forward and like try to figure out how to create more you know forced bonds in a way. But like you see it in the kangaroo, like th- th- they are, we're they're all sharing the land together. They're all part of the same ecosystem. You know what yeah. I mean? And, and yeah. like, and we, I think we feel as humans that we're superior, and that because we we can you know kind of build. Walls and cr- create the environments that are ours. You know everything's ours, and it's just when you get into uh, specifically the Australia story, it's like no, there's, this is our this is the land that we all inhabit, and then we all have to figure out how to like coexist. Uh, you know with each other, and and raise bond with uh, with with Cancun is incredible, but you know should it be so incredible? You know what I mean, yeah, and part of the reasons it's so incredible is because that that that's a relationship that. You know, people that, in that country specifically—you know—the half of the population views kang, kangaroos as rodents. As yeah, that should yeah. be exterminated.
0: And uh, and
1: so. not to mention, kind of wild and dangerous when they get to be kangaroo uh, size. So exactly. there's that element. But yeah, part of what was important, which I made a point of mentioning at the top of the show about that story, is that uh, Ray is running a, a kangaroo sanctuary, and so you know, rescuing, rehabilitating, and then they're then they're they're set free. As, as was Cancun, if I'm not mistaken. So what's interesting is that he just decided to stay. But, I mean, the point that I think is significant there is that it was his choice. Like, like all the other kangaroos, he was fixed up, rehabilitated, ready to go, and just chose not to. It was free will that he stayed there, and, and then just this partly already, you know, this, this bond maybe was well underway with Ray but he, he, he stayed partly because he did have this bond and he didn't want to go but he could have he could have left yeah, at and, any and point also saw,
2: and also saw something in Ray as a you know somebody who is part of his mob mm-hmm. that is there to help his you know you know his uh, fellow kangaroos you yeah know what I mean? like. We, we, I think we project a lot of things onto animals sometimes. We anthropomorphize, uh, yeah, you know, uh, yeah. things with our animals because we want them, we, we want to like feel that they're feeling something and we are sure. they're, they're feeling something, you know, and when you see it, and I think again, this, the series does show that these, you know, incredible bonds and relationships exist. And, and there's, these aren't the only stories that are like that, but these are the stories that I feel like. You know exemplify that you know we 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 can have strong bonds outside of our you know our own species, and maybe we should pay more attention to you know that we're that we're not the most important part of the food chain, you know, yeah
1: well, with that in mind, we're just sort of nearing the end of our time don, but uh. Uh, I, you know, Glenn uh, Zipper has been on the show a couple times, so I, I tend to ask him this when he's been on about dogs or cattails or whatever. So are there more uh, Bond stories kind of in the offing, do you think?
2: Well, listen, I, I got to say, you know, when we uh, when we finished this this season, you know, we, we did talk about, like, oh, it would be amazing to, um, you know, to get another season going uh, because I think this is something that, uh, we certainly had a blast doing, and I think that there's no shortage of incredible stories in this space, and I think they do resonate with people. Yeah. And uh, so it really is going to come down to, you know, how well uh, it's received on Discovery Plus and, you know, ratings and all that kind of stuff. I see. What the metrics are anymore. Sure. Uh, but, yeah, that all the more reason to, if you like the show, you know, Spread the word, get it out there, you know, get more people to watch it, because you know if, if it does well, I think the likelihood of a second season, you know, will, will be uh, more more possible.
1: Gotcha, cool. All right, well, we've been speaking with Don Argot. He's the co-director of the Bond, which is uh, streaming now again on Discovery Plus, and you can find out more about that by going to discoveryplus.com. You can also find out more about Don and his uh, production company and all the films that we sort of touched on a little a few of those at the beginning of our conversation that's 914pictures.com so Don thank you so much for joining us today on Talking Animals. I really enjoyed speaking with you
2: Duncan likewise thanks so much for having me
1: thank you bye bye in a moment I'll speak with Kirsten Peak of the Humane Society of the United States discussing the HSUS Operation removing some 4,000 beagles from a facility in Virginia where they were bred and sold to laboratories that conduct animal experimentation. Right now, though, we're going to step into the Comedy Corner with Nate Bergazzi in a piece called How to Get Bitten by a Snake in today's Comedy Corner on Talking Animals on WMNF.
3: This another place. I, don't like, like, cause I was at the airport, and the guy was like, uh, I was like, I'm going to Honduras. He was like, what city? And I was like, I'm just learning right now. That's not the name of the city. So, oh, no, dude. just wherever other people are going, probably let's just go there and figure it out. We get to the base, and the guy he's like telling us about Honduras, and he uh, he's like, you got to be careful. He was like, uh, "You gotta really look out for snakes. There's a lot of venomous snakes here. So when you walk around, just keep an eye out." And he was like, "Now if you get bit by a snake, uh, the best thing to do is then just go ahead and catch the snake and bring it, so then we know like what snake bit you." <laughs> I was like, dude, I'm pretty positive that's like exactly what you're not supposed to. Like, I've never seen that ever on Animal Planet. Like, someone gets bit and then they gotta be like, now I gotta get it. Uh, I was like, I'm not gonna do it. I was like, that doesn't make sense. I've never caught a snake in my life. And then when I get bit for the first time, I gotta get it together and catch a snake. I was like, it's not gonna go good, man. I was like, he's gonna keep biting me. That's all that's gonna happen. And he was like, it doesn't matter. like, you've already been bit. And I was like, do you even know what a snake is? It completely matters. There's a huge difference between one bite and probably 30 bites. That's what we're gonna be at if I try to catch this snake. Who told you this, the snake? Is that who told you to tell me all of this? Whose side are you on?
1: That was Nate Paragazzi in today's Comedy Corner with a piece called How to Get Bitten by a Snake, Taken from a Performance of His on YouTube. Now it's time to speak with Kirsten Peake from the Humane Society of the United States about their major operation underway to rescue and relocate 4,000 beagles. It's an enormous undertaking, obviously, and could probably use some support. We'll find out more about that in just one sec as we welcome Kirsten Peake to Talking Animals on W. Good morning, Kirsten. Kirsten?
0: Oh, oh, Sorry. <laughs>
1: oh, okay. I didn't hear you there at first. Okay. Thanks for joining us on Talking Animals. So, what launched this rescue mission? Well, how did it begin, basically?
4: Yeah, so what led, and thanks so much for having me on, um, what led to this transfer plan was a lawsuit by the Department of Justice related to um, alleged Animal Welfare Act violations um, against Indigo, the breeding facility. Um, So repeated federal inspections resulted in dozens of violations, including findings that some dogs had been euthanized without first receiving anesthetic, um, inadequate veterinary care, insufficient food, unsanitary conditions. And so, um, yeah, our organization, the Humane Society of the United States, um, agreed to find placement uh, with shelter and rescue partners around the country for the approximately 4,000 uh, beagles at the facility in Cumberland, Virginia, over the next 50 days.
1: Wow. So what was the initial reaction you and your HSUS colleagues had to the fact that it was 4,000? I mean, that just seems so... Staggering and, and probably daunting too. When 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 you're thinking, okay, now we've got to remove these beagles, find homes for them, get this figured out, cleaned up, whatever. I mean, what was that initial uh, response?
4: Yeah, um, I think it took at least for me, it took a minute to sink in because um, that's just that's. I mean, that's an epic number. Um, it is a you know, it's a it is a feat of epic proportions. Yeah it's a huge task. Um, but excitement, I mean, it's, we're up for the challenge. And so I I think for most of us, it was like, whoa, but then, okay, like, this is what, this is what we're like getting ready to do. You know, these are the outcomes that we hope for, for animals. So, um, yeah, excitement and and just being, being up for the challenge, I think, but it's been, it has been a whirlwind um, of planning and coordinating and, And all sorts of stuff over the past several weeks, um, because we've been working on, you know, arranging with rescue partners, um, you know, who can take animals, how many they can take, when can they pick up. So there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes before um, we were able to even get hands on dogs and start. Actually, physically placing them, which
1: we started doing last week and I, given that we're talking about four thousand or more beagles, I assume the operation has to kind of tackle uh, as part of uh, the organization you just mentioned a certain number of dogs at a time, like okay, we'll just okay. take you know th- these this group has agreed to take two hundred this is this group hopefully will take three or four hundred is that is that how you're just kind of doing it piecemeal because I don't see how else you could wrap your right. uh, arms around it otherwise.
4: Yeah, so we're doing them in batches. Um, So the first transfer, which took place last Thursday, we removed um, 432, and they were um, divided up among several rescue and shelter partners. And then we got more of them yesterday. So to date, um, I mean, in less than a week, we've removed approximately 900 um, and divided them up, yeah, among. uh, more than a handful of shelter and rescue partners who, you know, stepped up to to open their doors to these animals.
1: And is there kind of a triage situation, like how you decided that first 432, and then the remaining, you know, almost 500 or whatever, the next round? Is is there a way that you're saying, okay, well, these 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 dogs kind of need to get out soonest, or need help soonest medically, or, or how how are you yeah. making that determination? Um, so we
4: prioritize. First, requesting um, the release of nursing mother dogs and um, unweaned puppies okay. because their immune systems are the most susceptible. Sure, and so getting them, you know, into a um, a good, comfortable environment is is critical ASAP. Um, so we we prioritized starting with the most immune-susceptible dog. Okay. And, and then we're moving on from there um, uh, to get the rest of the population.
1: Yeah. Now, I know this isn't our focus for today, but I'm sure many people uh, who've become aware of this story, even if some have just become aware of it now as we've talked about it, maybe struck uh, or struck anew in some cases by how often beagles are used in animal testing. Any just brief, any observation or thought about that uh, that you might want to offer?
4: Yeah, Um, I mean, yeah, animal experimentation is not really my expertise. We do have a department that focuses on animal research issues, but, um, yeah, I think a lot of people are surprised. I I have noticed, um, you know, in working on this operation, a lot of the, the general public wasn't aware that beagles are... I mean getting tested on, you know, as as we speak. Um yeah. used in animal research. So I think it's been eye opening for people. Um yeah. because, you know, beagles are people like they most people think of beagles and think those dogs belong on a couch. They belong, you know, in our homes being family members. So I think um yeah, I think that's really struck chord with a yeah. lot
1: of people. Yeah, I think a lot of people uh May not realize how commonplace that is, and I guess it's partly, I guess, mm-hmm. their temperament or disposition or whatever, but it's, like, a, yeah. kind of an added uh, horror of, of this story, I think, uh, that, that mm-hmm. you know, we're talking about 4,000 beagles. I mean, 4,000 any dogs would have been bad, but, I mean, it just seems like it keeps being beagles. So... um so, it's obviously, I think this project sounds like a massive undertaking and probably expensive, too. Lots of resources involved from HSUS and others. So, if someone listening wants to support this effort, uh, where would they direct any kind of donation they might be able to make?
4: Um, so both for donations and information. Um, I suggest people start by going to our website, which is Mm www.humanesociety.org backslash 4,000 beagles because there people will be able to see, um, also the list of shelter and rescue partners that are taking in animals. So you can, if there's one, you know, that is local to you or close to your heart for whatever reason, um, you can go to their website to either donate to one of the, you know, organizations that will be directly placing the animals, or you can also inquire directly through them. About, okay. Um, adoption. And yeah. So I,
1: that's the that's place,
4: place
1: yeah and I went there earlier and there was also a little pop-up thing about how to donate so that, that seems like that's the place to go no matter what you're interested in or how you might be able to help so mm-hmm. so thanks Kirsten I think we have just about run out of time now but thank you so much we've been speaking with Kirsten Peak from the HSUS about their uh, rescue operation with the 4,000 beagles which again you can check out find out more at humanesociety.org backslash 4,000 beagles Kirsten thank you so much for joining us on Talking Animals
4: Thank
1: you. All right, we have just about reached the end of today's edition of Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. Scott Elliott is up next after five minutes of NPR News. We'll be back next week with two filmmakers. who have done an interesting documentary called Free Puppies, chronicling dogs being transported. It's WMNF Tampa.
4: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. President Biden's back at work after spending the last several days in isolation to recover from COVID-19. At the White House a short time ago, the 79-year-old implored the American people to take full